Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves, hear the world differently. Bringing community mental health to you, raising awareness and challenging stigma. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm. Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. I would like to begin by paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I am coming to you from today. Land where at Brainwaves we tell our stories, and land where the traditional custodians have told their stories for many, many years before us, and continue to tell their stories. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who are listening today. Hello, welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR 855am, 3CR Digital Radio and streaming on the 3CR website 3cr.org.au. Today we have a special for everyone. For the next couple of weeks we'll be replaying the 2023 Woodcock Lecture that was proudly hosted by Wellways. And this lecture will be broken up into four parts and today we'll be listening to Matt Ball's powerful insight of this year's topic being human, humane responses to distress. Please note that some of the content could be confronting. If today's show brings up anything for you and you are in need of some extra support, please call the Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. Otherwise, please enjoy today's show. Thank you, and can I thank Stacey as well for her warm welcome to country and your generosity in sharing something of your story. Um, I personally would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this lecture is taking place, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always has and always will be Aboriginal land. I pay my respects to their elders past, present, as well, as well as elders from other communities in the room or joining us online. It is vital we reconcile our past for a greater future together. As Michael said, I'm Laura Collister. I'm the CEO of Wellways, and I'm thrilled to welcome so many of you here tonight, in person and online, to the 2023 Woodcock Lecture. This year's topic is one that likely will have touched many lives at some point. Mental distress is, in fact, perhaps one of the most relatable human experiences we can encounter. History has documented the unique and diverse experiences of distress time and time again through art, music, written word and storytelling, some of which we've heard. We know from listening to the testaments of so many people, consumers and carers, the profound impacts of acute mental distress. The way we have responded as a community and as a service system has too often worsened the impact for people and alienated people when they are most in need of connection and reassurance. The significant reform of the mental health system in Victoria and Australia more broadly presents us with an opportunity we must take to reimagine our responses to acute distress. This experience of acute distress and its impacts has inspired the life work of our guest speakers tonight and it has brought us all together this evening. I'm looking forward to learning and listening with you all. We know we don't have all the answers, but we must be persistent in asking the right questions. It's important for me to also acknowledge the courage of those with lived experience of mental distress and those who love them, as it is because of their voices and experiences 
that we are having these conversations this evening. We will now move on to our keynote address for this year. I'm delighted to welcome this year's keynote speaker, Matt Ball. Matt is a mental health nurse, practitioner, and a psychotherapist by profession. He has made innumerable contributions to public health systems, utilising trauma-informed and recovery-oriented approaches. Thank you, Matt, and welcome to the stage. Good evening. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, there's a few things I want to say, I suppose, before I start. But first, I'm, um, I just want to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people and uh, Stacey and elders past and present, but also uh, acknowledge where I'm coming from today and a lot of the work I'm going to talk about today has been done on Ghana country and influenced by uh, many First Peoples around this land that we're on, particularly... Um, my mind's gone blank. Uh, the Jukun and Yaru people up in the northwest have had a massive influence on my work, uh, and the Arrington mob uh, through their relationships with the Ghana people, but also uh, First Peoples in America. So, I'm going to talk about um, talk about this subject tonight. So, being human and exploring humane responses um, to distress. But I just want to name a couple of things. A couple of people have said to me they're looking forward to what I say tonight because it might be controversial. And I've dumbed down my talk tonight. So in the spirit of that, I'm just going to say a couple of things. And you can. what I want you to do is imagine or notice what you're thinking in your mind when I say these things. I don't mind what you think. I don't want to control what you think. I don't want to change what you think. That's what I'm talking about today. So I don't think that the reforms are going to deliver what we need. And I think there's lots of nods in the room if you can't see people nodding. So if we all know that... Shall we stop talking about them delivering? Okay? That's the first thing I want to say. And that's thanks to David, who came and told me I needed to say something big. Um, <laughs> we've also got the support lines, uh, which have been harmful to lots of people. So alongside the support lines, or going out the back of the room, speak to the person next to you if that feels all right. Sit and cry with us. Do what you need. Okay? Because that's about listening and hearing the voices and humane responses. Telling people what's available never is about the person who's in distress. It's always about the system. I hope the stories get out into the communities tonight, but I hope that means that we probably see an end to the way we do mental health systems in Australia. And that's not a criticism of any individual in this room or institution in this room per se, but it hasn't worked and it doesn't work. And we have a beautiful community of people all around us every day. And one of the things I want you to imagine while I'm talking is if we got rid of the mental health system over the next three years and all the people like me who are paid in it, so there was no funding for it, what would response to distress look like? So I don't... You can think about that and make up what you want. Some of you might ask questions or do what you want. Good. The final thing, and then I'll step down off stage and hand over to Helen. No, I won't. I've got a whole talk to do. I didn't plan any of this, by the way. The final thing is to say, when we think about asking the right questions, we're not listening. Okay? People will tell us what's happening if we give them space to do it. Each person might need a different environment, a different context, a different relationship, a different moment to do that. But asking questions of people is based on what I want to know, not what they want to tell me. So tonight I'm going to talk about listening and, and that is the humane response. Hopefully some of you already disagree with me and you'll notice that tonight. So this is not what I thought it was. Hang on. Oh, my slides. Oh, okay. So I want to start with a quote from R.D. Lang. Some of you know Lang. He was a Scottish psychiatrist, uh, of all things. And he said, the therapist must have the plasticity to transpose themselves into another strange and even alien view of the world. In this act, they draw on their own psychotic possibilities without foregoing their sanity. Only thus, thus can they arrive at an understanding of the patient's existential position. Now, I just want to break that down. Um, it feels really important. The therapist must have the plasticity to transpose themselves to the alien world of the other. So 
I don't need to know what you know. I don't need to pretend that I can know what you know. I'm trying to create an environment through listening for you to tell me. And in that process, you might hear something you hadn't heard before. And that would be about me not asking questions or telling you the answers. But just because I hear that someone lives or has different experiences to me doesn't mean I'm going to go mad. And some of what I'm going to talk about tonight is that we try and create systems for people to all behave the same because in reflection of your story, mine doesn't have the credibility I thought it had before I started listening to you. And that can feel like I'm going mad. But you won't go mad just because somebody has a different experience to you in the world. All of us in this room, everyone online has a different experience of what I'm saying now. So none of you know what I'm feeling right now. You just have your version of what you imagine I might be feeling as I speak. And just because we understand someone's existential position in the world doesn't mean that we're standing in their shoes. One of the things I hear a lot of about empathy is walking in other people's shoes. You can't walk in my shoes. You can't know my experience. You can only know your experience of me describing my experience. And this all kind of sets up what I'm talking tonight to, about tonight, about if we think we're going to come up with answers, if we think we're going to come up with treatments, if we think we're going to come up with ideas to make people's lives better, and yet I don't know the experience of the other, what on earth am I suggesting? And these are the challenges I think we have when we think about a humane, uh, human response. Um, Lang was a bit of a legend, so I'm, really the whole talk's about him, but... Um, what I want to say, another thing he talked about was that the way we attend to each other is the treatment we offer. So within the system, and I'll come to that in a minute, we offer a range of what we call treatments. But for what I'm talking about tonight, we're talking about being with one another is an active process rather than doing things to people. Treatments that we offer in systems are always done to people. And of course, there will always be a system that does that. But tonight I'm talking about what resources do we have available in our communities, in our societies, within our networks, not to do things to people, but to be with people. So we can think about treatment as the way we treat one another. And if we create environments and we accept that all of us has the potential for good within us, then if we create an environment where someone can be the best of who they are, they'll probably treat me really well. And so if the environment is conducive for both of us to feel safe, to feel nurtured, to feel loved, to feel warmth, to feel available to be as we are, then, then we'll both benefit from treating each other with that humanity. And those are some of the difficulties I see in the system as we move on. What happens to this connection? Because connection is what I'm talking about. What happens to this connection in the system? And I think what happens is as we move away from treating one another as mutual beings, we move towards treatments, in inverted commas. I'm not going to do that all night. It's really annoying, isn't it? And what it does is it obscures the connection. So it says that we thought we came here as mutual beings. I trained as a nurse and I really love people and I care about people. I want to do the right thing by them. So I've come here tonight to really help you. But unfortunately, I'm going to do some things to you. And what I don't realise in doing that, I'm removing the possibility for us to be mutual. So everyone here today, I presume, could be a nurse practitioner if you wanted. It's just a series of studies you do and placements you do. Or every one of us here could access a nurse practitioner for support. And what we do is we obscure the importance of the connection between the nurse and the patient or whatever dyad we've got going on. So in the system, the treatments turn into diagnosis, they turn into drugs, they turn into electrocution or ECT, some might call it. They turn into hospital, they turn into psychosocial recovery, which is the latest buzzword, which is a very strange thing because we think of psychosocial recovery as this gorgeous um, human relational model but we still need people to have goals. We still need an NDIS plan to justify getting in psychosocial interventions. We still need institutions to grow and bid for funding in order to do this to people. Then we still need the KPIs. Then we need to evaluate it. What are we evaluating, we might ask? So this is what happens to connection. It gets overtaken by these enormous stories. Um, it's very easy to think of Big Pharma doing that or blame psychiatry or... And, and, and I do do those things uh, sometimes, uh, so, so that's true. It's also easy to blame nursing. You know, nursing's done some dreadful things in its time, individuals under the guise of nursing. That doesn't mean we all have to feel bad and terrible, but we have to acknowledge it so that we can think about, oh, all these actions are obscuring the potential for us to be mutual and human. So I think the system also gives us a limited language, which is about the diagnosis and so-called treatments, I suppose. 
Um, and I think the intention and goal of the industry of mental health uh, seeks to have a knowing and a set of norms. So when we have a knowing that I know more than you and that this is what the goal of normal is, then we're not doing mutual relationship anymore. We're creating ideologies of power. We're creating epistemic injustice. We're, we're creating these narratives that say one group is better than the other or more plausible, legitimate, whatever, than the other. And these are the things that cause the problems in the system. Um, and at this point, the personal is contextualised within a political, government, institution agenda, even just trends of the time, ideologies. Uh, one of my least favourite things that's going on that's governing mental health at the moment is the uh, social media world. So if you can get yourself up the social media world, then we'll deliver treatments in response to who's popular on social media. That's not evidence-based care. That's dreadful. I mean, evidence-based care is bad enough because the limits of evidence-based care are what they are. But to, to start delivering so-called services based on social media popularity is a major issue. And again, it just obscures the possibility for us to be connected, to be kind and to recognise mutuality. And those words, kind of, as I say them, sound a little bit light in the rest of what I've said, but they're not light. So if someone in here today is, you know, we use the word... And, uh, Sounds brutal, I feel a bit naughty. If we think of the word, tonight I heard, if anyone's activated, we might use the word triggered, right? It doesn't matter, you can change the words if you want. What we're talking about is that someone's noticed something within them. That's, that's okay. That's okay, we all have experiences. Some people might express that with tears, some with voices, some with anger, some with rage. They're all okay things for us to do. So how do we move away from telling people what to do when they express the, an emotion in the wrong way in any given setting, rather than waiting for them to tell us how they'd like their response to be responded to? So, that's that bit. What I want to show you then is this is what we think this looks like in our model, and later I'm going to tell you a bit about the Just Listening community. Um, the person on the left is the person in distress. They've come in, they've got all these stories in the back of their mind and they articulate that verbally. The person on the right is what I would argue is the current approach to mental health. So we sit there and we have some thoughts in the back of our mind based on that person's life, not this person's life, but the listener's life. And then the listener decides that they can give advice or guidance to the person on this side. But as Lang told us, we can't know the other person's experience. We can only know our experience of them. And so when they articulate, I know what you mean or I can help, this person over here, it doesn't make sense to them because they're not talking about the same thing. This person on the right is talking about their life and this person on the left is talking about their life. And the person on the left thought the person on the right was interested in talking about the person on the left. If it gets gobbledygook, that's intentional. So... This is what I think is currently happening in our system. So what do we need to do then? Well, one of the things we need to think about is knowing where we're coming from. What are we bringing? What am I bringing? When I come and sit with someone and I want to offer me as a human, what, is it, what are the narratives in my mind, the stories that I'm going to layer on the other person, almost regardless of what they say? And for me, these are some of the things that... that this month when I was writing this presentation were in my mind, I'm thinking about liminality. Now, I can, tell, I can tell a person in distress all about Turner and Jackson and liminality and communitas. Uh, it won't mean anything if someone's crying about their dog dying, right? So th I'm just going to give a few examples. Buddhism's really important to me because it, it, it's helped me understand that when I'm harsh or difficult or moving away from someone else, this is my own story inside. These are my own generational stories that make me want to move away from this person for other reasons other than the, the reasons of the person. Um, Joyce Travelby and Gertrude Schwing are quite incredible mental health nurses who talked relentlessly about human relationship, particularly um, Gertrude Schwing. She would, she would go and sit next to people in the beds in hospitals in the 1920s and 30s who were said to be catatonic and treatment resistant. She'd take them a gift because she was saying she was being invited into their lives and if you go to someone's home, you'd take a gift. And then she'd wait until they felt able to communicate with her. So this was her model of nursing. I don't see that in modern nursing. That's not how we do it. And there's a range of reasons for that. But we don't do that in any of our services at the moment. Sit and wait for people to, to, to be how they need to be. But those um, thinking about the modern ideas of dissociation, I'm going to talk a little bit about dissociocotic in a minute. And um, 
the, the modern ideas of dissociation are interesting because they're essentially made up. We've, we've sort of adapted the use of the word dissociation from meaning a physical embodiment of separating yourself off and said that it happens in the brain. So now we've all heard of dissociation and how there's these funny things happening in the brain and we do it brain imaging. We don't really know all this. And it's another distraction that creates disconnection. If any of you have the absolute privilege to sit with someone who's dissociating and not do things to them, you'll see their states changing. People will manage their states in response to the connection and the environment in which they're in, not in response to clever strategies. And thinking about love and mutuality, one of the things, whenever I talk about love at talks in in, um, academic settings, people are surprised to hear me talk about love in mental health. I think we would do well to talk a lot more about love. Whatever that means, and it means something different to everyone, but thinking about a kind of life energy that we all need to have a flourishing life. That's not about treatments. That's not about evidence. That's about what someone needs in order to feel connected in this life, enough to continue on. So what does that play out with if we don't think about those things, or even if we do? I just wanted to touch on suicide. Um, We think about the puzzle of ethics in suicide, and, and the reason I bring this slide up is, again, it's a bit of audience participation, although you're not invited to say anything. <laughs> just think it. Um, I'm not going to respond to you anyway, because I like to listen to what people say when it's their turn. Um, so when we have someone who tells us that they're thinking of it in their own life or contemplating it or, or has thought about it, I think a number of things happen. And I think the first thing that happens is that as a human, we have a response to it. And we might hear language in our own mind about whether people have a right to do that, whether it's a choice to do it. I'm not sure why we need to consider what somebody else's rights and choices are when they can or can't do it. Um, But we're going to have a set of stories in our lives that shaped what we as a human think about suicide. So that's going to govern how we respond doesn't matter what promotion, what media is out there. Some of this will come from our cultures and our knowledge and our histories and our families and our own experiences. Most of us in the field are going to see ourselves as professionals, and I don't mean just clinical professionals, I mean all professionals. So we're going to have kind of a culture within our professional groups of how we respond to suicide. And we're going to, that's going to be governed by a range of things. Then we're going to have a kind of systemic approach. So where you work as a professional within which system, the system will have a set of ideas of what's acceptable and what's not. And then we've got to contend with what society thinks. So I don't know how many of you get involved in this sort of thing, but when we look at all the media campaigns, breaking down stigma, all these things, if you go and speak to someone that has nothing to do with the mental health system ever, go and ask them what they think about the media and campaigns around suicide. They're not relating to it. You know, you, you, I mean, some might be, but... The, the two most recent people I've spoken to about it, one was a soccer player being played to play soccer at a sort of low league level. I said to him, oh, what do you guys do about mental health? And he says, oh, we've got a poster on the wall. Brilliant. That was it. He said, there's no way any of us would talk to each other about suicide while he's sitting in the room talking to me about suicide. You know, so, so what, how useful have we got? I'm not sure. He didn't come to me because of that. He came to me because his dad told him he had to, right? Not because he'd seen a poster on the wall. The other one was a guy who does FIFO work, flies in and out of the mines, and I was doing a charity thing with him, and I said to him, oh, mate, just wonder, what, do you th- what would you do if your mate was suicidal? Am I allowed to swear? No, I won't swear. I try not to swear. And he said, I'd tell him to pull himself together and come and have a beer, right? Which on one level is quite nice, right? But he said, he then went on to say, I'd, st- I'd tell him to stop being pathetic, right? So this is, this is a man that goes away, goes to a mine site and at six o'clock goes and sits in his room on his own, right? So how far have we got with our wonderful models? I'm not really sure. But these are all the things that I think happen. And so I'm just sort of encouraging you to think about next time someone tells you that they're contemplating ending their life because it feels unbearable, all of this will be running through your mind and you're going to select which one of these to prioritise in terms of your response. So, we've, uh, just to summarise this, I suppose, we want to move away then from the medical model and, and we've developed this thing called compassion-informed, whatever, I'm sure other people have done it as well, but what we're trying to get at is how do we start conversations and relationships with mutuality and humanity? So the medical model, uh, in a very crude way, would have seen people as having diseases and disorders um, and along comes the disease and the disorder, we give a diagnosis and we consider risk and very quickly 
if we're not careful, uh, we don't see the person anymore. We just see the disorder and the risk. And that's all about the systems, it's all about the professions, it's all about society's perspectives. So we move towards a trauma-informed model, and I should disclose, I used to teach this, uh, I don't anymore. Um, so the trauma-informed model was, was useful because I think it was acknowledging what's happened in people's lives rather than what's wrong with them. Uh, however, everyone here, I presume, knows some very amateur business about neuroscience and trauma in the brain. Um, and that, if you're not careful, starts to sound a lot like diagnosis. So you used to have a chemical imbalance in your dopaminergic pathways. Now you've got an overactive amygdala. None of us, or no, some of you might, but not many of us in the room know anything about what I just said other than what you read in a textbook or saw on a five-minute video. So the problem is then is that we attach trauma and risk to the person and we stop seeing the person and see their trauma and risk. And if you want evidence of that, just Google after this talk, or if you're bored, you can Google during it. Just, just Google how many trauma therapists there are in Melbourne. There's trauma therapists everywhere for you, don't worry. Because we've worked out that that's an industry and a business of itself. So what we decided was if we approach one another with love, it might help us to sit in mutuality. And it might just mean that there's two human beings spending time in states of distress. And that might, in some way, if we can start with that at least, protect us from all the other noise in our head of what we need to do. So I just want to introduce you to an idea called dissociocratic. So I've kind of tried to set up that there's lots of things getting in the way. They cause us problems, but it is possible to approach one another as mutual humans. However, we kind of probably need to understand a little bit of a reference of why people show up in distress when we think we're offering kindness, right? So I was in a psychiatric hospital one day, and I, or it was a hearing voices group, actually, and a young guy called Mitch said, um, can, I, can I work with you, Matt? And I said, oh, you can't, because you're not in the right locality. So he said, oh, which hospital are you attached to? So I said, oh, I'm attached to that hospital, right? So this is Friday lunchtime, clever guy. He goes to the hospital Friday evening, tells them that his voice is what they're saying, which they are threatening and scary voices they put him in hospital he says he's willing to go in voluntarily and all weekend he says i want to work with matt ball right so monday morning comes i go and see mitch yeah there's mitch and he's telling me that these voices want to kill me and cut my arms and legs off and and you know in old language these are command hallucinations this guy is scared he's overwhelmed it's frightening i don't want to play down the suffering anyway i make him a cup of coffee i snuck in some caffeinated coffee for those of you who've been in hospital you'll know the reference um and I, we drank from China mugs as well, which was <laughs> with a voice hero of all things. Um, anyway, so we, we drank coffee and he, he told me all about this. And then the, the psychiatrist came out and said, oh, it's time to come in for your assessment now. And it's, the individual psychiatrist is a lovely human, actually. So it's not about them. It's about the systems and the structures and what we do. Called him in. He went into the room, told the psychiatrist the same thing. And she decided he was a risk to people. Okay, so he gets up and kicks the door and pushes the table over, which swiftly gets him into the seclusion room, right, and the secure unit. So they asked me to leave, of course, because I'd been difficult and caused all this or something like that. And then four hours later, they ring me up and ask me to come back because he hasn't stopped shouting that he wants to speak to me, right? So I go back and I'm in the room with, with him and a, a nurse called Sophie and we're chatting to Mitch and I said, well, Mitch, your voices are telling you to kill me. Do you want to do that? And this tear rolled down, some of you have heard this, this tear rolled down his cheek. He said, no, that's why I came here, because I want to hang out with you. My voices are saying all this, but I wanted to be here with you. So I said, what do you want to happen next, Mitch? And he said, um, he said I just want to hug. So the three of us stood up and hugged, and he sobbed, and he sobbed, and he sobbed. Anyway, I saw him a few months later, and some stuff happened. I saw him a few months later, and he said to me, you know what's really weird, Matt? When we were hugging, my voices disappeared. And I was so cross that day, so angry that day, I decided to make up a word. So I made up the word dissociocotic to try and explain that psychosis... I mean, there's lots of people writing about this, but we need new language sometimes to move us away from the broken old language. So I made up this word dissociocotic, which essentially comes from dissociere, to separate yourself off or set yourself at variance, and psychotic, the kind of activity of something... And, and, and so what I'm trying to say is that, that, that dissociocotic and the way people present themselves is just a kind of altered state of being in the moment to survive in that threatened relationship. And when that relationship's not threatening anymore, they don't need to be in that state. Now, that will come and go. It will change. It will be different at different times. Um, some of you, when you came in here today, it's not, not just about voices and visions. Some of you, when you came in here today, will have noticed how anxious you were working through the door. And then five minutes later, you'll have forgotten to be anxious. 
And if you look around, it's because you're talking to someone that's safe or you're in an environment where no one can see you or whatever the context has been. So, so what happened to that anxiety? Was it a disorder? Was it some sort of fundamental problem of your brain? Or was it just a messenger and a voice from within that this environment doesn't feel okay? So the other part of dissociocotic was that one day, I really do believe, and I, I'm going to make a joke now, potential for me to be sectioned for this. <laughs> one day, I think we won't only see that psychosis, voices, visions have meaning. We'll actually be grateful to voice hearers, people who have altered states of consciousness, even people that have strongly expressed emotions, because we'll see them as what some cultures would have called shaman. We'll see them as telling us about the problems that exist in this community today. So there'll be more than one of you that doesn't like someone in this room, and you'll be anxious about bumping into them. So maybe there's something shamanic. There's a message coming through in that. It's not that you can't cope with social environments and networks. You're not disordered. You're not broken. So how do we respond to it in an acknowledgement that, ah, oh, this person is telling us a very uncomfortable reality about what's existing within this community tonight, rather than saying, oh, there's a bit of a problem there, and if you just do something else, then we can all carry on as if those problems don't exist. It's, it's challenging what I'm saying, if you can understand it, because it moves us away from the whole context of needing to classify behaviours as disorders and instead invites us to see wisdom in the person that's expressing that disorder, albeit unconsciously, for many. So, what does it look like? The person on the left is in distress. They're displaying psychosis, as you can see in the middle. What I would say is they're talking about their trauma, the meaning they've developed, and then they're dissociating. And they're placing that between themselves and the person listening. Now, what we do is we seek to get rid of all this in the middle and pretend it's not there, and it gets worse. So it got worse with Mitch. What this model is talking about is that the person on the right needs to change their behaviour, not the person on the left. So the person in distress, why are we asking them when we can see they're in distress? Why would we ask them to stop doing that? They're not doing it for fun. It's not made up. So the person on the right, the listener, needs to be the one that changes their behaviour. Just a quick overview of dissociation, just because I like these slides. Once upon a time, we thought of dissociation as a shutdown event, and give me some licence on this. The brain was much more primitive. It wasn't as nuanced as it is. That's as much neuroscience as you're getting. There was animals. We used to fight the animals to survive. We ran away from them, flee, or we froze. Then we lay flat in the hope that the animal would stop chasing its prey once it lay flat and it would run past and we'd survive. Very quick tour, by the way, of this. <laughs> we moved on. Our brains adapted, or that's the story we tell ourselves in the modern tra tra trauma models. The brain adapted. We're more nuanced in our threats. And now the threat is from a person, not an animal. So we might still go into fight and flight. And oh, <laughs> I like my little graphics. Um, yep. Uh, or we might freeze. Or we might lie flat. Now... This is this skillful bit, right? People who are psychotic. If you, we walk out in the street now and someone's shouting at their voices, some of you, most of you, will move away from them. So it sets them at variance from other people. Excuse me. <coughs> Stacey's giving me COVID. <laughs> Just kidding. She hasn't. Uh, <laughs> but, so, but so if we lay flat, if we, if we were scared and, and another way of being scared was to, to sit quietly in the room, what we're scared of is people. They'd come and see if we were okay because that's what humans do. So what I'm suggesting is that dissociocotic is a busy, active way of keeping people away from us. That's all it is. And if we can shift our thinking about that, then we can understand, oh, this person's fearful of something. Let's not try and change them, because that's why they're fearful in the first place. So going back to this, that's what it looks like in here. This person's scared. We see the psychosis. We don't hear the trauma, the meaning they've made, and the need for them to escape that environment. So we try and change the psychosis. We give them antipsychotics. We put them in hospital. We do all these things. And yet there is a plethora of models that are based on human relationship that we know people would say they feel less overwhelmed. And the display of the overwhelm is different to what it was in other environments. Just think about satiria. For example, Lauren Mosher's work, eight years of study, shows us that people, about 90% of the people that went to this hospital, went to this home, run mostly by volunteers and students, often with people with lived experience, um, didn't need medication for first episode psychosis, whereas the other group did need medication when they went into hospital. But actually the outcomes were slightly better for satiria at two years, five years and ten years. So, so what does that tell us about creating the context of human relationship and not trying to change people? They did this thing at Satyria that when you first went there, they did a vigil. And that was 
really about sitting with people and allowing people to be. And then people weren't so psychotic. You know, and then they could go back into being psychotic if things were overwhelming. And, and we could have more vigils. So what, what, what I'm saying is, is that when we create environments and the interconnectedness that comes through a sort of loving relationship, when we haven't got goals to change people, it, it reduces the need or it negates the need for the psychotic state to exist. You don't need to take photos. You can have the slides afterwards. <laughs> um, so it negates the need for the psychosis to exist. Now, I want to ask if everyone understands that, but you might not. I can't really explain it again. Anyway. So I'm going to move on from that. So what I want to do, because I haven't got too much time, what I want to do then is tell you, okay, so I've tried to tell you that the way people show up, particularly in psychosis, but in any state, the way they show up is legitimate. It's the responsibility of the listener, the witness, the person alongside them to adapt their behaviour, not the responsibility of the person in distress. That's an old model that doesn't work. And the way to do that is about being mutually human. It's about looking after your own stories so that you don't lay them on other people and continue the distress going on. And that sort of justifies for me my thoughts about the reforms in this country not working because they're grounded in the old stories. So if we were going to reform mental health services, we'd say, okay, diagnosis was made up with good intention, but it hasn't served us. We'd say that social media and, what's the word, anti-stigma campaigns were well-intentioned but hasn't served us. Okay, we'd say the treatments, the drugs we've got, haven't worked and haven't served us. The numbers of disorder labels go up, the number of drugs chucked around goes up, but we don't see new breakthroughs in those environments. We just see a continuation of the same. So if we really wanted reform, we would be really radical, return to the roots of human distress and the mutuality of all beings and say, we don't know the answers, let's start again. So we did that and we set up Just Listening. Just Listening was inspired by Lauren Mosher's book, Just Listening. Uh, and that was not about the, simply the fact of, oh, I'm just listening to someone. It was about offering justice to any single person's story in the context of listening. So we don't need to change the story. We don't need to make it better. We don't need to make it worse. We don't need to adapt it in any way because we would see and believe that a person would hear their story differently if it was uninterrupted and untainted by the narratives of another. And this takes me back to the two people. If I dump my story on someone, their story's changed. So very basically, I come in to talk about the death of my dog, and you tell me uh, about the vets in the area. I haven't finished talking about my dog yet. You know, I'm talking about the emotions of my dog dying. I'm not talking about vets that can, I don't know what they can do, but they're there, that's good. So that story belongs to someone else. And really what they're encouraging is that I move on from my distress about my dog. That'll never work. And we, I think everyone in this room would agree that, and online, everyone knows that doesn't work. And yet we all maintain this ideology that, we can kind of fix things and solve things and move things on. And what that does, it does an injustice to the legitimacy of any single person's story because it overrides it, it discards it, it makes it secondary to the wisdom and the knowledge of the helper. But that's a mythology. It's really interesting doing this talk. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to do it so much was because Eleanor Longdon gave this address in 2017 and if you haven't watched that talk I'd go and watch it uh, and if you haven't if you don't know the significance of the movement of which Eleanor was part of it I suggest you go and look at the hearing voices movement they're saying way before me everything I'm saying now um, and yeah so what is just listening about very pr basic principles you will listen with the intention to offer justice to a person's story that's your role so tonight when we've finished, or in between things, if you want to comment to someone, when someone's talking to you about what I've said tonight, maybe someone's annoyed about it, maybe someone's happy about it, maybe someone's laughing about it, crying about it, notice the stories in your mind of what you want to say to them, and don't say them. <laughs> Let the person have that moment to themselves. It will be all right, I promise you. And if it's not, send them to me and I'll listen to them. <laughs> um, focus any responses on the story of the person you're listening to. If you stop and pause and think about how you're going to respond to someone who's telling you a unique, beautiful story of living, 99, oh, whatever, your words aren't going to be relevant. 
to that story other than your agenda. Resist the urge to fix. Our system is entirely about fixing. It becomes about economy. It becomes about government. It becomes about agendas of drug companies. It becomes about everything that is wrong in our communities that create the distress. And yet we try to fix people to believe back in line with what's wrong. So when you, can't, when you want to fix someone, just remember to be quiet for longer. That person will resolve their own stories. It might not look nice and feel nice and be yummy, but they'll work through that moment. And they might be in another moment that's distressing. Stay there with them. Sit longer. Listen longer. This was our risk assessment when we ran this project. And then slow down and be aware of your thoughts and intentions. If you're going to deliver a service that's about fixing people, tell people, I think I've got the answers to everyone's problems if they only listen to me. All right? And so if you come and see me, I'm going to tell you the answer to your problems. Good. I don't think you'll have many takers. So what was the Just Listening Project? Well, the Just Listening Project was a community where we wanted to offer a genuine alternative to ED. It's a big fashion to talk about alternatives to ED. I don't think there is many in reality. I think there's versions of the same. I think we take the same people from one project and put them in another one and say it's going to be different. But unfortunately, the tools are the same. The context are the same. The systems are the same. The professions are the same. If you take the safe haven model, it's very interesting. I went to visit it very soon after it started because it started in the town where I'm from in England. The safe havens in this country are not, I tell you, not the safe haven model from the UK. And yet we funded them on the basis that they're the same. So what we should be doing is being honest and open and saying, we've stolen the name of something and it looks a bit like it and we've convinced someone in power who's got money to fund them. And now we've got about 30 across Australia. That's okay, they might work, but we're kind of doing something weird and being a bit deceitful. Um, I'll tell you a story about the safe haven, actually. <laughs> the one I went to. When you got to the safe haven, the one I went to visit, you had to stand outside and be spoken to through a camera to see if you're allowed in. That's how different things are. From I mean, it wasn't all like that. Some of them weren't like that. But it's just funny to kind of actually go back to the origin of these things and go, are we doing what they're doing? Because we're using the evidence from there, but it's not the same. The one I went to, there was no peer workers. So now they're all peer-based. So that's, I think it's a good thing that <laughs> they got peers in them now, but they weren't. So it's really interesting to see how we adapt these models. So what, what we wanted to do was say, well, okay, we haven't got any money. Uh, someone very kindly donated us a building uh, on the understanding that we offered some free services. Um, discussed over a cup of coffee in North Adelaide. And, um, and we, we had to come up with a model. So initially we are going to open this project, we are going to train volunteers, they were going to come and listen to the community in any states just as an alternative to going to the emergency department. Two things we were told, there won't be enough community members that want to do it. The other thing is, what about risk? And then a lawyer said to me, unless you've got a model, you're going to be in all sorts of trouble. So we went away, made up dissociocotic and got it published. Made up suicide narratives, got it published. Started putting the language of human to human in the domain and compassion informed. And then we used the model of power threat meaning because it's got this very rich evidence base to it. So we were able to kind of come up with a model that could justify us saying, we can teach the community to use this approach to be present and listen with justice to people coming in in distress. We had waiting lists on every training course. And I'll come to the data at the end that I suppose is of interest to systems about whether we, um, about what the risk issue was. So, but I want to talk to you about what we've learned. We go back to these drawings, and what this is different because this is about listening. So on this side, we've got the person who's got stories in their mind. Is this safe? How do I do this? I don't know what's going on for me. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm nervous. They're narrating this narrative. What's happening here that's different to the last one is the listener is listening and not speaking. So they've probably got some similar things in their mind. And I, we've in intentionally included difficult things like, you might be bored listening to someone. It's not fashionable to say that because that's not the politically correct, nice, fluffy system. But if we're honest with each other, sometimes it's boring listening to people. Okay? It's okay to notice that. We're not asking you to write that off. That's legitimate. What's that telling you? Just the way we might see psychotic people as the shaman of our, of our Western culture bringing stories. What's it telling me about my story and whether I really want to be here listening or not? It's okay. I can listen. I can listen. Offer the same thing to me that I offer to the other. And so as you listen, 
rather than speak, what you're going to start to do is realise that the tools of your mind that you wanted to dump on the other, you don't have. All you really have is your heart and your spirit. So this picture is just depicting that when this person speaks, their, it, their words are met with the mirror of love, the mirror of the person, their being. And so they get reflected back, not the words and nonsense of the person on the right, but just the heart and love of the person on the right. You know, if I tell you that um, I was abused as a child, I imagine it, if, if you can sit and hear that and I can, it feels like you've heard me, I imagine that feels different to having to have that in my own head. So it comes out of my mouth, it's in the ether, I don't know how it's going to respond to, oh, wow, this person's given space for that. Wow, that's beautiful. Okay. They didn't dispute it, they didn't try and fix it, they didn't do stupid things to me. They just offered me the love of a human that can understand something dreadful's happened in my life. And what does that do? Well, it sends it back uh, that this person can hear their own story differently. Oh, okay, I understand. That's a bit of a relief. That makes sense. I feel heard. Not because this person's told them, but because they've heard it differently outside their head to inside their head. If you go back to dissociocratic, people who are hearing voices, when, when they feel heard and held, their voices change. Voices do change. They might come back again. They might change again. Who knows? But they do change. And so what we're aiming for then is this sense of connection that's, that's created by a person simply holding their being, managing their own stories, not trying to impact on the other, but saying, I'll just be here as long as you need and you can hear your story in that reflection. I think part of the difficulties is that this can feel quite disempowering for those of us that have trained in various models to be quite wise and wonderful. But another secret for everyone in here, I'm a nurse practitioner and a psychotherapist. I've got two university degrees. I'm a prescriber. Uh, I run my own clinic. And I don't know the answer to anyone's problems. You know, and it's kind of odd, but it's true. How would any of us know any of that? Anyway, what did we do with Just Listening? This was our six-month evaluation. We felt we had to write an evaluation report because that's what you do, right? When you write, set up a project, the system demands an evaluation. It was completely irrelevant. And I don't think anyone's really... Oh, probably half a dozen people read it. Oh, you read it? Thanks. <laughs> so just to give you a snapshot then. So what, I'll summarise. What we were doing, took community. They were given half an hour listening in a group. Then they listened to the public for three hours, up to three hours, whoever came in. Then they were given half an hour group listening again. So we offered the same thing to the listeners that we offered to the public. And then us as a leadership group, me, Bernie and Rory, we were offered the same thing where we were listened to as reflection as well. So everybody had the same model. No disciplinary process. If you listened to someone and you moved away from listening and started giving advice, you're, advised to come, you're invited to come back into the group and be listened to. What was that like? How did it feel that you offered something to someone and did something else? And of course, what you notice is people regret or feel sad or hopeful of the future of not doing that. So the model was offered to everyone, the CEO, all the way down to all the volunteers and everyone in between and all the public. Only one model. What we found was we had 215 visits in this six months. Um, we had 60 volunteers certified. 41 of them were active and busy. One of the problems we had was that volunteers wanted to come more regularly then we had availability on the roster. So sometimes we had like seven or eight or nine volunteers and only two or three people would come in. What that told us, and we didn't realise until afterwards, was we should have been counting the volunteers in the numbers because they were getting equal value for being there to what the people that might come in from the street were. Um, we offered 106 supervision hours in six months in this very small project, which was just beautiful. Every single time we opened, there was this group supervision at the start and the end. Um, but the bits that really interested me, no one was deemed too high risk for the community to deliver an ED alternative. So if you think about all the systems, if any of you work in or access systems here, why is it that the community were able to meet the needs of these people when our systems decide that these people are too big to have in our systems? They're really important questions. Um, we also didn't transfer anyone's care uh, we didn't call 999000, we didn't call mental health triage, we didn't move anyone on. We had a non-referral process, so what we said was rather than referring you to another agency, just come back as often as you want. All right. So there was no... I remember the first time um, I went to the minister about this, and, and forgive me if this is offensive, but it's true, it is offensive. Um, the minister's senior advisor said to me, but what are you going to do about those borderlines that just keep coming back? That was what she said to me. 
That's what's said. You can be shocked if you want, but it'll have been said today. It's okay. And I said to her, do you know what? Those borderlines are going to be bloody brilliant because once they've been heard enough, rather than being removed, they're going to want to volunteer because they're going to know how beautiful it is to do it. And guess what happened? The people that used our service the most wanted to get on the training. Okay, so if we want to think about a humane approach, we want to think about a human-to-human approach, what we need to do is return the compassion and the love to the community, remove ourselves as professionals, institutions, organisations, structures that have other agendas, and, and, and give power back to the communities to listen to one another. And so I'll just show you this last picture. This is our mental health ED alternative. Um, the people that bought the building for us, when we turned up, this big smiley sun was on the front. And I had this little feeling that it was a bit irresponsible to want that. Anyway, they got a local artist to repaint it in bold. Um, and and, and so, so they, they sanded back the floors, so we had really beautiful Jarrah traditional wood floors. You know, the, the, it's not just about those simple things. However, those acts of consideration of the other go a long way when we're trying to think about mutuality. I like to walk on nice wooden floors, as do the people coming in in distress. It kind of seems like such a little thing. Whereas the opposite of that is that one of the big NGOs in, in Adelaide, and if anyone's watching and knows, the one, you'll know the one I'm talking about, it's this enormous building on one of the main, main streets. And you walk in and it's really confusing because they've sold out the coffee shop and all these services out down the bottom. The lifts you have to follow, if you push the button, then it tells you what floor you're at and what letter lift to go in. So you come into this building anxious, and before you know it, you've left the building because you wouldn't have a bloody clue where you're going. So creating environments that are normal to people's lives as well as treating each other as human beings is, I would argue, the answer to a humane response to common human distress. And there's not one of us that doesn't suffer it, and there's not one of us that can't offer that compassionate response. That's all I've got to say. Thank you. You're listening to Brainwaves on 3CR and that was Matt Ball's talk at the 2023 Woodcock Lecture. You can listen to more of the highlights from the 2023 lecture next week on Brainwaves um, and you can find more of our shows at www.brainwaves.org.au or wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts. If you did find anything from today's show upsetting, please call 1300 111500 to speak to someone at the Wellways Helpline. Stay safe and don't forget to tune in next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.